why I am dressed up today. Um, if you are visiting Palview Christian Church, this is not what I look like on a normal. There's actually not a normal look, actually. If you, if you'll, I love dressing up. But uh, today, we're, we're talking about courtrooms. And so I thought, I want to dress up like one of them southern lawyers. <laughs> Give me a mint julep up here, rocking chair, just kind of a southern drawl. Um, I know that this, sometimes you can read these on the internet, by the way, but you can't always trust what you read on the internet to be true. Uh, these actually came from Reader's Digest, so I know that they're true, okay? <laughs> and I read them way before the internet was in invented by Al Gore. Um, Actual transcripts, no lie, actual transcripts from actual trials in the courtroom. The lawyer, now Mrs. Johnson, how is your first marriage terminated? By death? And by whose death was it terminated? Think about that one. Or, or this one. Now, now, what is your date of birth? Uh, June 15th? Now, what year? Every year. <laughs> True. That was a, that's real transcripts. And finally, this is, I think, my favorite. Have you lived in this town all your life? Well, not yet. <laughs> I, I don't know if I could be a court stenographer. I think I would just bust up sometimes and be irreverent. I think I would go nuts sometimes. It would just drive me crazy. But you know, I'm in good company. I, I think the Apostle Paul would probably enjoy my sentiments because uh, as we come to Acts chapter 24 in our, in our series on the book of Acts, what we're going to find is that this is the beginning of a series of courtroom trials for Paul, one right after the other, and each time he'll be proven innocent. But when has that ever stopped the legal system ever? <laughs> His life is on trial. It reminds me, actually, there was, a, there was a group of singers and orchestra called Impact Brass and Singers, a Christian group that used to travel the country. I don't know if any of you ever saw Impact Brass and Singers, but I saw them a few times in different ministries that my dad was in. And, and they were, it was an immense choir and, and an immense orchestra. And the, one of the fun things to do is that when they came to your church, your church would actually house them. So we would have like four or five of these people coming over. We'd feed them dinner. We'd feed them breakfast and get them on their way. And so we got to know them in, in, a, in a cool way. But this one presentation was actually far beyond its time because they used multimedia for this presentation. They had like five or six major screens. If, if like these panels right here were all huge screens and they had each different um, uh, projectors projecting different images on them, telling the story. And then they would sing songs that would relate to that story. Well, the story that I remember most is the story that proposes the question, if it were illegal to be a Christian, if it were illegal to have faith in Jesus, would your life produce enough evidence to be convicted? Evidence, the song went. Evidence, does your life have enough evidence? Could they put you away? So let me ask you this today. If your life was on trial, would there be enough evidence 
that you could prove to show that you were a disciple. This morning we're in Acts chapter 24, and there's a lot of things that we could look at. I really want to focus in on one main thing, and that is this, your life on trial. Now, the hinge verse is actually not the first verse. It's actually 2416. So if you'll take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 24, verse 16, this is what I believe is the pivotal verse. Paul is talking to his accusers and to the judge, and he says this in in verse 16, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. What a statement about integrity, folks. My prayer as your pastor, and you know that I love you, and I love serving as your pastor, my prayer for you is that you could say that in all confidence, that you have a clear conscience before God and man. Some of you can say that right now. Some of you say, I wish I could say that. Let me tell you, there's always hope. There's always hope because the Holy Spirit continues to work in us so that we can get to a point where we can say that. There's going to be four pieces of evidence that that Paul brings to his trial here that I believe that we could all seek to add to our life, okay? Four areas that we can look at that, that will come into play when somebody wants to know what our belief system is and are we really truly what we say that we are. These four things, just by way of preview, are uh, the hatred of the world, the pursuit of holiness, a confident hope, and an undeniable change of heart. That's what we're going to be looking at today, so let's begin back in verse 1. Luke records this for us in the book of Acts, chapter 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea. He's coming from Jerusalem up to Caesarea, where Paul has been sent And he took with him some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Now, I don't want to offend. Is anybody in here a lawyer? No? Okay. Yeah, somebody one time asked me. They they were wanting a lawyer. And they said, Trey, do we have any lawyers in our church? I said, no, we're a Christian church. (laughs) Kidding. I'm kidding. Kidding kind of. Here's Tertullus, a governor, I mean a a, a lawyer. And when Paul, verse 2, was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. Now, now you got to just know what kind of, I mean, I got to go southern lawyer here, right? We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Reminds me of Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver. Do you remember Eddie? Some of you go, I have no idea who Eddie is. Some, some young people in here go, I don't know. Eddie was this guy who, once he was with his peers, he was just shooting the breeze just like everybody else. And all of a sudden, an adult would come in and go, oh, well, hello, Mrs. Cleaver. You look mighty fine today. You know, total brown, can I say brown noser? Total brown noser. That, that's what's going on here with Tertullus, right? Um, he continues, well, actually, that's where I'm going to end right there. No, I'm not. I'm keep going. Sorry. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, 
stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. There's the charges. Riots, troublemaker, ringleader of the Judaic sect, desecrating that which we hold sacred. Well, what is Paul's defense? Oddly enough, he begins with the fact that they are actually bringing charges against him. See, Your Honor, may I present Exhibit A, the hatred of the world. The hatred of the world. There is a definite distrust, discord. There is a hatred between the church and the world. Ever wonder why, after all the the good that the church has done through the centuries? Hospitals. That was a Christian idea, by the way. That was the church. When everybody else would, would abandon the city because of the plague, it was the Christians staying around, risking their own lives to nurse the, 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 uh, the sick people back to health or to see them uh, die with dignity. Um, universities, um, those were started by Christians. Um, we have homeless shelters. We have um, uh, programs to get people off of drugs and alcohol. All began by, we do so many good things in this world. Why do they hate us? I believe there's probably a couple reasons. Number one, I think the world hates the church because we love the one that they hate. We love the one that they hate. Now, I'm not saying that I know a lot of people who will just say, hey, I hate God. That's, that's not something you hear often. Um, you you kind of get out of their way when the lightning bolt's going to hit. I hate God. But I don't, I don't think they say it. I think you'll watch how they live. I, I think you watch their priorities. I think you look at their attitudes. And, and there's this this deep-seated resentment that there should be anybody in charge of their life. It's their life. They should be able to live it the way they choose. I don't want anybody, any God, to tell me what I'm doing is wrong or what I'm doing is right or what I should do is something different. People don't like being told what to do, having accountability to a higher authority. People don't like having to get off their throne of their life and letting somebody else come and hold sway. Now, so I I think that that's probably why people are hated. But we shouldn't be absolutely, we should not be um, shocked by that because Jesus told us it was going to happen. John chapter 15, if the world hates you, Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember this, it hated me before it hated you. So if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus said it's going to hate you because it hated me. Second of all in there, number two, I think that we get hated because we are not of the world. We're still in the world, but we're not of the same stuff that the world is. We don't pursue the same stuff that the world pursues. Because of the Holy Spirit living inside of believers, we're not different than what we used to be before Jesus came into our lives. And many times, people will hate us because we used to be what they are now. And they wonder, how did you get so happy? How did you find such fulfillment? That's not fair. It bugs them that we found a new direction or a way out or a higher purpose than ourselves. When you read the accusations against Paul here, you got to remember this. Paul used to be one of this crowd. 
The people coming at him, he used to be a part of that crowd. He used to do what, they, what they're doing now. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was on the forefront persecuting Christians. That's when he first shows up, if you recall, in the book of Acts as one who was breathing out murderous threats against those who followed Jesus. Now, some of you, some of you in this room, I know your story. I know that you know exactly what it's like to be a part of the crowd at one time, participating in what the world pursues to find fulfillment. You were there with the best or the worst of them, right? And then, like Paul, Jesus shows up, gives you a different perspective, turns your life around, and all of a sudden, you're not like the old crowd anymore, right? Uh, you, you might still see them on a regular basis, but more and more, they begin to pull away. Why? Well, because you make them feel uncomfortable. You're not like them anymore. You, you won't go to the bar with them and, and go drinking. You, you, you won't go to the strip club with them anymore. Uh, you, you, you don't make fun of the weird guy at school because everybody else does and piles on. Jesus says, don't be shocked. I told you it was going to happen. When people discover that you're not of their world anymore, you just don't fit in. And they'll begin to push you away. And to a certain degree, that is a way that the world will hate you if you're a disciple. Well, Your Honor, that was Exhibit A. Now Exhibit B, the pursuit of holiness. Now, when I talk about holiness, please understand I'm not talking about perfection because none of us will become perfect until we enter into glory and see Jesus face to face. But as disciples, we are all called to surrender more and more of our life over and over on this journey to the work of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. You see, holiness is being set apart for God's ways, for learning, for growing, for deepening ourselves in the ways and the Word of God. Look at, look at there at verses 9 through 13. The Jews join in this accusation, asserting that these things were true. And when the governor motioned for Paul to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple. They didn't find me stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. You see, just because you and I have experienced God's grace, just because you and I are forgiven, that doesn't mean that we're not called to live holy, holy lives. Yes, we are forgiven. There are no background checks when you come to Him in faith. No 12 years of rental history that you have to provide before getting into the place. No, it doesn't matter if there is cat urine damage. I'm sorry, I'm I'm speaking from experience right now. (laughs) It doesn't matter to him because he takes you as you are. But he doesn't ever want to leave you as you are because he loves you too much. God designed you to be like him. Sin enters into the picture and takes away that God image. And God says, I want to recreate that in you. I want to change you. I want to make you holy. I want you to learn the dance. We've talked about this before when we went through the the study of Galatians. I love this image. Paul says in Galatians 5, I say, live by the Spirit. 
you will not then gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. What I think is beautiful about that passage right there, church, is that being, uh, not being under the law anymore does not mean that holiness doesn't come into play. Yes, we are not under the law. We are under grace. But holiness still matters. Our job is to keep in step with the Spirit. It's like for our whole lives before we find Jesus, we're involved in a dance and we're used to leading. We're used to leading. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes in and puts this Holy Spirit inside of us. And now the Holy Spirit begins to lead. And now you have to do the dance backwards and in heels. That's a little bit more awkward. You're used to not having to do it that way. And yet, once you begin to learn how to do that, the beauty of holiness comes out as you begin to do what God wants. Not because you want to earn points or you have to jump through hoops in order for him to love you. He loves you and he wants you to learn this dance. And all of a sudden, your life begins to resonate with holiness. Look at the confidence that Paul has there in his reverence for God's word, verse 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. Paul says, listen guys, I follow the same God as y'all. I believe everything that agrees with the law and the prophets which was Paul's scripture, by the way. The Jewish Bible was called the Law and the Prophets. He says, I agree. I totally agree with God's way of living. It's an awesome way of living. It's a good way of living. There's blessing to live like that. Not that I would get salvation by living that way, but because I am saved, I want to display His holiness in my life. I want to live like how He wants me to live. And so He pursues Holiness. That's what it means to have a clear conscience before God and before man. You are surrendering more and more of your life to His way and His word. And if you're not paying attention to the Spirit of God, well, it's kind of like a true story. 1984, a Spanish airlines called Avianca, one of their big jets crashed. And in the rubble, they picked up the black box. And you know what the little black box is? It's the recorder. Uh, that records all conversation going on in the cockpit. And as they listen to it, usually they find out some, was it a malfunction? Uh, Were the controls not working? Was an engine out? Was it human error? Why did this plane crash? True story. They, they, They started to listen to the black box message. And there was a computerized voice that they heard in English. Again, this is a Spanish airlines. But in English, the computerized voice said, pull up, pull up, pull up. Pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. And inexplicably, the pilot shouts back in Spanish, shut up, foreigner, and flicks the switch off so he doesn't have to listen to it anymore. And seconds later, the plane crashes into a mountain and nobody lived through it. Folks, the Spirit speaks. Pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. Pull up. What's your response? Shut up. Or yes, sir. 
Exhibit B is Paul's willingness to let God's holiness shine through in his pursuit of holiness. Exhibit C, Your Honor, the confident hope. Real quick, I, I actually love how hope and holiness go together. Watch this. Look, look at verse 15. I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul says his hope lies in God's faithfulness. Paul knew that he could not do anything without God's power. He knew that though through God there was power to overcome whatever obstacle was in the way. Remembering that God's presence was there from last week, God was there, and God was giving him a different perspective. He knew that he could trust God. Therefore, he could be obedient to God because God was in control. I'm amazed at how much the concepts of holiness and hope are uh, so in, you know, connected. Um, if you recall the Old Testament story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, three young men who got taken away from their home in Jerusalem, and they got sent away to a foreign land, to Babylon. And there they were taught how to be Babylonians. They had to literally forget their culture, and yet they didn't. Back in the ancient days, nations had gods. And if you moved from one nation to another nation, you just adopted their new god. And if you went to another nation, you adopted their god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not abandon their god, their faith in Jehovah God, though they were living in Babylon. The king of Babylon had erected this huge giant statue and said, now when you hear the music, I want you to all bow down before this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, no, we're not going to do that. We want to stand in holiness. The threat came. I'll throw you in a fiery furnace if you don't. Here's what they said in Daniel 3. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. You see the hope that they have? God's going to rescue us. But even if he doesn't, We want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. My hope, my confident hope that God is in control is going to lead me to say, and I will do whatever, I will stand for truth. I will do what you want me to do. Just like Paul. He had just been reminded in last chapter that, that, that God was with him, that God was in control. And now his confident hope in that control through life or through death leads Paul to say he's not going to be swayed by threats and temptations. He's going to stand for holiness. Lastly, and don't you love it when a preacher says that? <laughs> Lastly, Your Honor, Exhibit D, a changed heart. One verse, verse 17, look at that. After an absence of several years, this is still Paul talking, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Gifts for the poor and presenting offerings. How does that represent a changed life? Well, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the religious leaders of their time that became so rigid in the law, they pumped themselves up and put everybody else down. It was all about themselves trying to impress the crowd. In his ministry, Jesus would see through them, call them hypocrites, 
In Luke chapter 20, he says, beware of those guys, those teachers of the law. Why? They like to walk around in flowing robes. They, like, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They love to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They weren't for the things of God. They were for themselves. A little bit later on or in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets like the hypocrites talking about these guys do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. <laughs> Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Even their acts of righteousness were done for themselves to look good. It's all about them. Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee that went to the synagogue and stood up to pray about him. Excuse me? It's all about you. Now, now Paul, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would have been concerned about himself. That's what his life would be about. But now, now that Jesus has changed his life and he's back to Jerusalem, which was a risk to his life, if you recall, Holy Spirit had warned him what was going to happen if he went down there. But he went down there at risk of his life to do what? To give gifts to the poor, to bring his offerings to God. Do you see a change of heart there? No longer was it about himself. He would do whatever he needed to do in order to live for God's kingdom and for other people. So there you are, Your Honor. I really wish I had a mint julep. There you are, Your Honor. The evidence. Hatred of the world, pursuit of holiness, the confident hope in the power of God and a sincerely changed heart. What's the verdict? Why is that so important? Well, Jesus said this. Remember, we talked about people being on a path of righteousness, I mean, a path of discipleship, and a path of discovery or a path of doubt. And we get all sorts coming here, and you're all welcome. For those of you on the path of discipleship, realize your life is on trial. Every day, people are watching you. Can you say that your conscience is clear before God and man? Let me tell you, it's an amazing way to live because you'll show the true power that God wants to display in your life and people will see that your faith is actually real. And Jesus said that if we confess him before men, he's going to confess us before the Father. Very sadly, somebody once said of a Christian I can't hear your words because your life is speaking too loudly. That's pretty sad. I can't hear your words because your life is speaking too loudly. Many of you protest when we say, we need to go share the good news. You say, I don't know how to do that. Well, maybe you don't use words. Maybe you can go to, to the class that we have on Wednesday night, 6 o'clock down in Sage, where you can learn apologetics and learn how to answer the critics and, and, and talk about and discuss your faith with people who may not believe. That, that could be what you do. But others, it may just be in the way that you live, living out the evidence of a good life, a life of faith, so that people will see the power of God. As Paul ends his defense, he turns the tables on the governor, Felix, and he gives him a perspective about where do you stand, Felix? Where do you stand in relationship to the future judgment? For those of you who are on the path of doubt or the path of discovery, you're, you're not quite sure yet. Let, let me talk to you real quick. Truth is we're all going to face judgment, all of us, good, bad, indifferent. The, the point is this. When you get into the courtroom, 
You want a good southern lawyer representing you? Or do you want Jesus representing you? Or are you going to represent yourself? That's, that, that doesn't seem to ever be a good idea. Any, anytime I, I hear stories of people say, oh, no, I'll, I'll just I'll represent myself. <laughs> good luck on that one, okay? The Bible says that we have a better attorney even than Matlock. What? What? The Bible says that our representation in heaven, right there at the, the right hand of the Father, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He represents us as forgiven and holy in His work on the cross. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what He has done. It's about taking care of our past, forgiveness of all of our sins. It's, it's about taking care of our present having the Holy Spirit inside of us, making us more like Jesus. And it's about our future. See, at the judgment, are you going to rely on your own good works? Or will you be able to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus to wash away your, your sinful nature, to pay the penalty of your sin and to make you right with God? That's really what it comes down to. Trusting in the resurrection of the dead. If you look real quick at uh, verse 21. You know, Paul says, if I'm guilty about anything, if I'm guilty about anything, check this out. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I stand on trial before you. So if I'm going to plead guilty to anything, it's I believe in Jesus' resurrection, and I believe that I can be forgiven, and I can find resurrection as well.